Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Our first email comes in from... Get back up to the email. John. John writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I think you have a soft spot for Red Hat. You clearly mentioned proprietary downfalls in other episodes, and yet Red Hat does a free license up to 16 servers, and you neglect to mention that at any time, Red Hat could simply revoke or refuse to renew those licenses for free. I can see now this free license will be used to get folks on RHEL. Then, when it's big enough, and there are too many folks using the free ride, RHEL will announce, we're not renewing those free licenses. Buy a license or get out. This is all a marketing play. If this was done by a proprietary software company, you'd be all over them, saying that open source protects you from these kinds of license downfalls. But somehow, Red Hat has given a free pass. Love the show. Thanks, John. So, uh, I your everything in your email, I don't necessarily disagree with. I just um, disagree on how you've kind of applied it. Um, so, let's start here. Everything Red Hat does basically is open source. Red Hat is not a proprietary company. Red Hat does not make a proprietary product. RHEL is not a proprietary product. Red Hat uh, Enterprise Linux is an open source product. And so you, John, or me, Noah, can go to Red Hat and get the source code from Red Hat, compile it, and use it. And there's nothing stopping either of us from doing that. What Red Hat is not is a community distro. What CentOS was, what Rocky Linux is, are community distros. Their community distros, a respin, a recompile, source recompile of Red Hat. And so Red Hat's open source nature is the very thing that allows those entities to exist in the first place. I didn't disagree. Well, let me back up. RHEL is not a community distro. It is a paid project from a company that wants to sell it for money. And there's nothing wrong with that. Full stop. Community projects then, like Rocky Linux uh, and others. Uh, take the code from Red Hat, they recompile it, and then they give it away or provide it as part of the community. There, when you look, when you look at borrow time, which is essentially what you're talking about, and I I might add, when we, when we originally covered this, when I talked about it uh, on the very first episode, one of the first things I mentioned was that I felt like to a certain degree, this was Red Hat putting us on borrowed time because you're right. Red Hat does have the opportunity to pull that pin at any time, um, but I don't think they will. And here's why. So you notice that within just days of actually didn't even take days, hours of the announcement of Red Hat changing their decision. Here's what happens. Red Hat decides or other companies decide that they're going to come up and produce respins. Then Red Hat comes out and announces that they're going to expand their development program but red hat exists to make a profit and if you're using if you're using a respin of a product in production then you better watch red hat closely because you're right they do have the ability to pull that pin 
But Red Hat has to make a profit. They have to make a profit so that they can run payroll. They have to make payroll so that they can pay the people that develop RHEL in the first place and develop GNOME and develop RHV, Red Hat Virtualization, and develop OpenShift. Then, with the extra money, the profits that they made off of selling the products that they sell to big businesses, then they can take that extra money, and instead of taking it home, they spend it on things like supporting community projects like Fedora and CentOS. It seems reasonable to me, then, that there would be some benefit to a $34 billion company that sponsors a free project that people use for free. Red Hat made the changes because that was in their best interest to make changes to the way that they that they handled the two, the two products, Red Hat and CentOS. And what I disagreed with, or what I took issue with, was a the way that they way the way they w- they went about handling about the news, and b cutting the life cycle short on CentOS eight. Uh, CentOS Stream writing point one ahead of RHEL means that all of the installs on CentOS Stream going forward are going to be a testing bed for Red Hat. And that doesn't just benefit Red Hat, though. It benefits all of the system administrators that absolutely have to know what's coming down the pipe in Red Hat. And what is interesting to me was 10 years ago, not even 10 years ago, seven, eight years ago, when Fedora tracked Red Hat a little bit more closely, I remember having discussions with other people in the administration community and saying how great it was that Red Hat has this paid product that they have available. And in addition to that, or on top of that, they you have the opportunity to pair that with something like Fedora and run that on your laptop, and then you find out what's going to be in Red Hat before it actually comes out in Red Hat. We used to see that as a benefit. Something has changed. And I think what's changed is our access to alternative distributions has become greater. And so the expectation from the community to deliver a more viable, more reliable, more stable, more secure product has risen. Red Hat responded to the community by offering more than they had previously offered. You're getting actual RHEL now. You're just getting it under a more structured licensing system. If you thought that Red Hat didn't have the ability to pull the pin out from CentOS, guess what? We just learned a few months ago that they did, and they did. So my frustration with Red Hat was the way that they handled it and cutting the life cycle short on on, on CentOS 8. Point blank, they went back on their word. If you give me your word that you're going to do something, you should do that thing. And I don't care what other factors come into it. We did an install one time early on in the, the, the career of AltaSpeed Technologies. I went out, looked at a hotel, and guessed it would take about $500 worth of time to reset a bunch of access points and reconfigure them so that it would work. After 18 to 20-some hours of troubleshooting later, we, we learned that those access points were not going to work and they needed to be replaced. But because I'd given that guy my word that we were going to do that job for $500, guess what? We ate the cost of buying new Unify UAC Pros for that whole hotel. Well, we didn't eat the whole cost. He paid $500. But my point was, I gave him my word I was going to do something, and then we did it. Even when it cost us a tremendous amount of money, that's my mistake. And I'll fall on my sword for that. And so to a certain degree, what I what I really took issue with was if you want to make a change to how you produce Red Hat or how you produce CentOS or how those two products coexist, fine, so be it, make a change. But do so with enough notice that the people that expected that this thing that you said you were going to produce and maintain is still going to be there. Because the problem with that getting cut short is 
it makes me more concerned the next time you tell me something is good for 10 years. Red Hat has a long track history of being a friend to the community. And so you'll notice when we went to cover um, this change and what, what is happening, the first thing we did was we approached the community projects, things like Rocky Linux. And we asked them, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? We got their opinion. We, we, got, we had them on the show. You can go back and listen to that episode. After that, we reached out to Red Hat and said, hey, the dust has settled, in, uh, settled a little bit. We didn't reach out to them the day they made the announcement because there was a lot of negative feelings towards Red Hat. And frankly, I didn't like what was coming out of their, uh, out of their media department. They didn't really have an answer. They, it, they, they were kind of spinning around. Um, so we waited a little bit until they got their, their feet on the ground and, and said, here's what we're doing. Here's the direction we're going. You notice that Red Hat responded to the community backlash. They made changes. They originally, they said, Hey, we're just, we're going to have CentOS stream. Now they're expanding their developer program. And when we talked to, to Brian Exelbeard, he said this was all part of the larger plan. So that takes me back to A, the way they handled the news, right? Just announce all of that at one time. But Red Hat has a track history of being a friend to the community. And so if if I sound like I am giving them the benefit of the doubt, it's because I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. And I'll continue to give Red Hat the benefit of the doubt until they prove beyond beyond all expectations that they're no longer a friend of the community. I just haven't seen that yet. What I've seen is a company who has a product that they want to sell and they are, for whatever reason, in a boat where they are supporting the exact same thing under a different name. And it just doesn't make any sense for them. At the end of the day, Red Hat is the product, CentOS is the free thing. And so look at what's happening in this landscape. First of all, we're going to get to this in the new segment. Not only do you have Rocky Linux, um, Cloud Linux launched their uh, uh, recompile of Red Hat. Additionally, you are seeing Red Hat pulling uh, resources from Red Hat proper as from a desktop standpoint and putting those efforts and resources into Vidor, which, by the way, is where they belong. Almost all of the people that I meet that work at Red Hat, their laptops come installed with, uh, I think they call it Red Hat uh, Standard Corporate Build, um, which is just basically Red Hat with some custom tooling on top of it for, for what they do internally. A lot of people that work there wipe Red Hat Standard Corporate Build and put Fedora on it. So why wouldn't Red Hat just acknowledge that that's their desktop operating system, RHEL is their server operating system, and CentOS is the thing that rides a little bit ahead of their server operating system. By the way, you can use the server one for free. I don't know. The model just makes more sense to me in my head. I don't think it was communicated very clearly. I think had they said, we're going to replace CentOS with RHEL proper and you just have this license thing or you have this account that you sign into – um, I think the backlash would have been a lot less. I don't even know if we would have had a discussion. We would have just said, now, what does all this mean exactly? But I think they're approaching it the right way. And I say that because when Brian Exelbeard came on, I asked him point blank, can I use this in production? And he said, yes, you can, as long as it's under 16 servers and as long as it's for an individual. It doesn't matter how you classify production. Uh, you're just not going to get support for it. So, uh, again, I would, I would reiterate that at the end of the day, Red Hat does not owe us anything. Um, it's their product. They put it out there. You're right. They can pull it at any time. Um, they just don't have a track history of doing that. And so I'm not going to assume that they're going to. And frankly, we just spun up a server today with CentOS Stream. So we're going to give that a shot, and we're going to use it as a virtualization host. So we're going to try all of the options out there, and we'll see what happens. So I'm keeping an open mind. I would suggest that you keep an open mind. Again, the second that Red Hat steps over the line and stays there, we'll call them out on it.
Cheskel writes in and says, hey, Noah, I've been listening to the show for a while now, and I really love what you do. Your show is a way for me to get ideas and knowledge about technology and stuff. I heard you talk about Element and how great it is. Since then, I've been looking into it, and it looks amazing. But then I heard that some company I work for considers switching from Slack to Rocket Chat, and I was wondering what you think about Rocket Chat and why you don't use it yourself. Keep up the great work, please, Cheskel. So I want to be clear, all of the open source chat applications have their place. At Ask Noah, we actually, when we started, uh, when I started to build the Ask Noah team, so to speak, people that help us out, um, at that point, I was already kind of looking at alternatives to Telegram. And so we actually tried Mattermost for a while and was very happy with it. I mean, it, it does what you would expect it to do. It's a it's Slack with a different name and it's open source and you self-host it. Uh, and it works about like that. Rocket Chat, I view it kind of the same way. Tool that came out in 2015 began really as a live chat tool. Built on Meteor, I think. Um, and eventually turned into a full team communication thing. If Rocket Chat works for you, go for it. Um, the reason specifically I went with Element over Rocket Chat is, first of all, decentralization. I uh, Decentralization and federation, I should say. I very much like tools that I can go to the person who made the tool and try the tool as if it was the proprietary version. What I mean by that is I like that I can just go to EMS and sign up for an account through EMS, a paid service that hosts an element server for me, and I can compare that to Slack or Telegram or any other server that would that would have a service that you could just sign up for, right? I like that that exists. Additionally, they have matrix.org, which doesn't get you your own server, but it lets you experiment with element of technology. But then you hit federation, and basically federation is a, a staple for me going forward, I think, because what it means is it doesn't matter which element instance you're on. You and I, as long as we both support federation, can talk to each other. And so my dad's clinic. They were looking for a communication tool. Element was literally the only one that supported end-to-end -end encryption, which was required for them to stay in compliance with um, with HIPAA stuff. And so they went through that. And obviously, we had already done that at AltaSpeed Technology. We switched over. And so now my dad's clinic and his staff are able to message myself and my staff over at AltaSpeed because we're both on the same platform, even though we have two separate plans. We're two separate organizations. We do two entirely different things. But that technology allows us to connect. And then bridging and widgets. The I cannot tell you how much simplified my life has become that I get a Facebook message, shows up as an element message. I get a text message, shows up as an element message. Uh, you know, I get a Slack message, shows up as an element message. I get a Telegram message, shows up as an element message. Everything comes into one communication platform. And then you add to that, again, because there is no effort really to try to tie an individual to an account, I have lots of element accounts. I have I have accounts on Linux Delta. I have accounts on Matrix.org. I have I have lots of accounts, and those what that allows me to do is add the the collection of accounts that I need to have added to watch any particular chat. So the really important ones have all the accounts added, no matter where I am. I'm always seeing messages in those chats, and then as we trail off or get further, really from my immediate family, the further out you go, uh, the less available I am on, on those mediums. But the interface, the application. The structure is the same no matter what I'm doing. And I, I've yet to find another platform that can do that as well as Element does. And then finally, end-to-end -end encryption. Uh, there are just very, very few applications that support end-to-end -end encryption and even fewer yet that support end-to-end -end encryption um, with all of the other functionality like federation and widgets and bots and stuff like that. 
Uh, and so I ju- I've, I've just yet to see something that can top what Element can do. Our pick of the week this week is Funk Whale. You can learn more at funkwhale.audio. Now, this is pretty cool. If you uh, are a Spotify fan, and maybe you say to yourself, you know, the thing I like about Spotify, I really dig everything Noah says about self-hosting and, and keeping all my stuff local and stuff like that. But you know what? Gosh darn it. It's just not the same when I go buy a, a CD and rip it to flack and put it up on my Volumio box and click on play. Yeah, I can listen to the song, but I can't share it with Bob. And Bob can't share his song with me. And Sally can't. You know, you want that to be a social experience. If that's you. Funkwhale is the answer. Funkwhale.com, or excuse me, Funkwhale.audio. You can learn more. Funkwhale, uh, just like whales, Funkwhale users gather in pods. A pod is a website running a Funkwhale server software. By joining the network, you register with an account on a pod, sometimes called a server or instance, which will be your home. You'll be able to interact with other people on your pod, regardless of which pod they're using. So again, this goes back to the whole federation thing. It is Spotify, but it's self-hosted Spotify. Also, it supports Federation. And so you have the opportunity to uh, to either sign up with Spacebar, Cloud68.co, or Wearing, Par- Wearing IT Services. All are hosting Funkwell pods. You can go there at Funkwell.audio and sign up for one of their public pods, or you can run your own. But either way, it turns music social again. And... Um, and 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 so I, I I took a look with it. I've been playing with it just for a little bit. This is um this is something I'm interested in primarily because I'm interested in being able to to play my music uh, even when I'm not connected to my NAS. And so I was looking for different ways to do this. Uh, this offers the opportunity to listen to your music everywhere. So they have a mobile app. It works well enough. Um, they have a web interface that's fantastic. Uh, and so, and yeah, little pods that you can set up. So I have my own pod running and I've kind of played with that a little bit. I signed up for an account at Space Bear just to kind of see what that looks like. Um, but yeah, th- this is a, this is a, uh, this is pretty cool. And, and Space Bar is, uh, they don't just do, um, Funk Whale. They do other decentralized federated hosting as well. And so uh, check them out too. I don't know a lot about them. Uh, but if you've been one of those people that miss Spotify, or maybe you're one of those people that are still on Spotify and uh, and are looking for a new home, I invite you to check out Funkwell. You can learn more again, funkwell.audio. Um, and yeah, check it out. The gadget of the week this week. This is a Raspberry Pi automated white noise generator. Now, if you've never used a white noise generator before, back in the late 80s, early 90s, they used to sell physical devices you could get at department stores. And the idea was you would take this device and you would call up a sound like an ocean breeze or a thunderstorm or a rainforest, and it would play these noises in the background. The idea was that it could uh, help distract you or really drown out other noises. Uh, Ideally, when you go to sleep, you really don't want any other noise pollution in the room. And so if you can get to sleep in a perfectly quiet environment, by all means do so. I live with three children, and that means that there is no such thing as a completely silent room or a completely silent house. In fact, there's always noise of some sort everywhere uh, in my house. And so I have kind of resorted to white noise generators um, to help kind of drown some of that out or to at least con- to, to make consistent the noise level that I'm hearing so that I can sleep. Uh, and so, uh, this comes to us from M-I-H Ulstafa. I don't exactly know how to pronounce that, but I will have a link for you in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. Theory. 
Having complete silence while you sleep may seem nice, but in fact, it can lead to trouble if the outside environment is also not completely quiet. A cat may meow, a car may honk, your upstairs neighbor may wake up for a late night snack. All of these will sound louder if your room is completely quiet. The human perception of noise is nonlinear. That's why it's measured in decibels. We describe a 10 times increase in volume as a 10 point increase in decibel measure. So this uh, this organization built a Pi and connected it to some speakers, and they're using a software called OMX Player to play white noise that is found on the media directory. And so this guy built basically a white noise generator just based off of a Raspberry Pi. Now, I took it one step further I, because it's, OMX Player is just basically playing a sound. I, uh, I, 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 I used a, a, an app that had uh, that I found that had a the the kind of white noise that I was looking for specifically like a Star Trek space uh, ship kind of you're sitting on the on the on the on the space deck thing and plug that into my mixer and recorded an hour of that sound and after I did that then I was able to take that loaded into the pie and use that to play back the um. I guess I don't have the app with me. I'll have to, I'll include that in the show notes, but there's a, there's a second app that I use to record uh, the audio. What I liked about it was it allowed me to adjust the individual uh, components of the audio, creating a whole soundscape um, because there were certain sounds I found less uh, kind of annoying, frankly. And, but I was able to turn those down. Um, and so uh, I'll include the link, link to that noise uh, or that sound generator as well, uh, as well as a link to the blog that shows you how you can set up a Raspberry Pi, connect it to some speakers, and use it to generate white noise. In the news this week, Firefox 85 is cracking down on super cookies. Now, if you don't know what a super cookie is, we'll start with regular cookies. With a regular cookie, if you don't want it to follow you around the Internet, you simply clear your browsing history or browsing data. And you can do this inside of the Firefox settings. Um, this will block cookies and third-party cookies from your browser, and it auto-deletes cookies after your browser session ends. You may have to log into a site each time, and certain things, uh, certain functionality on sites may break, like shopping carts, because when you add something to your shopping cart, like on Amazon, for example, and you go back and browse to something else, it's a cookie that is handling that for you. And so in most cases, uh, cookies are helpful to us, and we want them. A super cookie, however, is different. A super cookie, even with cleaning your browser, data, it's not going to help. And that's because a super cookie isn't really a cookie at all. Uh, it's not a cookie at all in the way that it's not stored in your browser. Instead, an ISP inserts a piece of information unique to that user's connection into the HTTP header. That information uniquely identifies any device. So a few years ago, Verizon got caught doing this, and it allowed Verizon the tracking of every website that their user visited. Now, they were later fined, I a million and some dollars uh, for doing this. Um, but because an ISP injects the super cookie between the device and the server and it's connecting, uh, there's nothing that the user can do per se to prevent it. You can't delete it because it's not stored on your device. And ad scripting and blocking software can't stop it because it happens after a request has already left the device. Um, and so uh, I, I believe it was 2016, Verizon got hit with like a $1.3 million fine for tracking customers with this unique identifier uh, known as a super cookie. It was big news back then. And the FCC forced Verizon to allow their customers to opt out of this kind of tracking. Well, in Firefox 85, they're introducing a new fundamental change to the browser's network architecture to make all their users safer. 
They're using network partitioning connections, and this caches the websites that are being visited. Trackers can abuse the caches to create super cookies and create connection identifiers to track users. But by isolating the caches and the network connections to the website they were created on, they make it useless for any sort of cross-site tracking. Now, like all web browsers, Firefox shares some internal resources between sites to reduce overhead. That means that when Firefox's image cache, uh, for example, if an image is embedded on multiple sites, Firefox is only going to load that image from the network during a visit to the first website. When you go back to that website, Traditionally, it's going to load the image from the browser's local image cache, and that does a couple of things. First of all, the site loads faster for you. Second of all, there's less network traffic. Um, similarly, Firefox would refuse a single network connection when loading resources from the same party embedded on multiple websites, and those techniques are intended to save a user bandwidth and time. Well, in the case of Firefox's image cache, a tracker can create a super cookie by encoding an identifier for a user in the cached image on a website. And then you can retrieve that identifying information uh, on different websites by embedding that same image. So to prevent that possibility, Firefox 85 is using a different image cache for every website a user visits. And that means that you're still going to load cache images when a user revisits the same site. But in this way, we don't necessarily share those caches across different sites. And then to further protect users from connection-based tracking, Firefox 85 is also partitioning pooled connections, prefetch connections, pre-connect connections, and speculative connections, and TLS session identifiers. So unless you host a podcast where you talk about privacy and security, if you work with this stuff, cookies and how they're abused can be dry at best and oftentimes terrifying when you when you fully roll them out. But what I really appreciate about Mozilla and what I appreciate about Firefox and specifically is that they roll out this stuff, even if you're not paying attention to what makes your browsing history safer. Notice you don't have to do anything for this to work. They're just changing the way that the browser works to help protect you. And it is this role, it is these kinds of decisions, and it's these kinds of actions that make me continue to believe in the effort that Firefox has to creating a, a secure private web. This company has made some interesting decisions lately, and they continue to – every once in a while, they, they'll, they'll publish a blog post or something that make me scratch my head and go, what are you guys talking about? But overall, this company has a good, solid track history of caring about users' privacy and continuing to push that forward. And so when I see stuff like this come out and I dig into it, and I'm like, this is really fantastic that a company digs this far in and says – here are the way that people are here. Here is how people are abusing this power. And here's how we're going to thwart it. Because let me tell you, it had Mozilla not published a blog article on how they're doing this. Again, unless you research this stuff for a show or you work with this stuff, the chances that you're going to go digging in to how cookies work and how super cookies work. Probably not. Right. I mean, you just go to the website and use it. And, and, and with things like GPDR, we do have uh, an increased awareness of these pop ups that come up. But I can tell you, as a guy who works in an IT company, the vast majority of human beings just click on accept all. Uh, I don't. I go in there and click through the little things to make sure they only have the strictly necessary cookies. But a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people aren't motivated to do that. And I was reading an article today talking about some of the privacy enhancements that Apple is doing to iOS 14. And a lot of people are in, in that realm are saying, I'd rather pay. I'd rather have my privacy violated than pay for an app. And that's something like 80% of people. So, I mean, there's a lot of people that just wouldn't care otherwise. Mozilla cares for you, and for that they should deserve and, and, should, and should receive credit.
The Ubuntu installer is getting a much-needed refresh. So the Ubuntu installer today is ubiquity and dates back to 2006. Now, Martin Wimpers, the, up until today anyway, the head of uh, uh, former head of uh, of desktop uh, at Canonical, said that it was the, the code base is becoming difficult to maintain. And so while everything is perfectly functional and it still works and they're still going to keep it available for other respins and stuff, they are going to move on to a new installer called Subiquity. You can learn more at github.com slash canonical LTD slash Subiquity. Now, Subiquity uses Curtain and a snapped installer, uh, which is in my estimation, going to be near impossible to customize for other flavors and spins. Additionally, it's not based on GTK. It's not based on QT. It's based on Flutter. And there is a branding and visual consistency discussion that occurred on Canonical's form. I'm not a developer, so I, I don't really have a dog in the fight, nor do I understand it well enough to to comment on it. But what I don't understand is we have GTK, we have QT, and yet we've decided to replace our installer with a replacement built on Flutter, which comes to us from Google. Now, someone asked in the forum, what happens when Google discontinues Flutter, like they've done with Angular 1, uh, Angular 1 and 2, Angular Native Script, Google Web Designer, Google Poly, and Google Daydream? No answer. I'm excited anytime something new comes to Linux. I dug into Flutter enough to understand what Google is trying to achieve with it. And I will admit it looks very nice. It produces very nice looking apps. It's a very appealing way to build an app UI, both on a phone and on Linux. And indeed, if we're going to continue to move into the mobile sphere, it probably makes a lot of sense to start incorporating some of these technologies that can scale across multiple devices. However, I'd be interested in, to know what other installers they tried before going down this route and what the push for, Flutter, particularly Flutter as a snap, is. It seems like they want everything in a snap, which is fine. But again, that's controlled by Canonical. And now Flutter, even though it's open source, is at least maintained at the moment by Google. And so if Google steps down for any reason, for any reason, decides not to maintain that, now we're back to it's one company, Canonical, is going to be developing or maintaining Flutter for for their software. Um, so I, I just... I'm I'm not sure the 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 installer looks nicer. It looks very plain because I don't think they have gotten through all of the styling to make it match uh the rest of the desktop UI. Um but it's an interesting decision, so I guess we'll continue to follow it. GitLab is changing their subscription model. Uh the short version is GitLab is phasing out the bronze starter tier. The current bronze starter customers are going to have over a year to transition. Uh they're going to be offering transition discounts. Uh, those are going to be available to current customers. And it, GitLab Free is going to continue to gain features with over 450 features added in the last year. Here's the, here's the, here's the skinny on this, guys. Um, GitLab, when they, when they launched, uh, really after Microsoft took over GitHub, a lot of projects to include all of AltaSpeed stuff moved over to GitLab. We were just more comfortable there. And, what, and what you've seen is a continual and, and, and unsubstantiated growth from GitLab. People like it. And GitLab, the company, has continued to refine the idea of software development and the tools that software development needs to the point that they are a complete CI uh, system. And for some organizations and for some developers, they need that. Uh, other organizations, other developers, they don't need any of that. They just need a code repository. And so if you just need a code repository, you're fine on the Git 
uh, GitLab free tier. If you want all of those additional features, if you want things like team communication and, 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 and a CI infrastructure and all of that, that's where they, they have a product that you can pay, uh, to get started or you can self host and do it yourself. I mean, either way. Um, but they, they, they provide that as an opportunity. And so they're restructuring that. Um, I, I don't, again, don't really have a dog in the fight because everything that we use at Ulta Speed fits under the free tier. And if we weren't going to be with a free tier, we would probably just self-host. Um, but I'm glad to see this company is growing. I'm glad to see that they are continuing, uh, to make open source development, software development, easy and approachable for companies. Because when you have a sales rep that works for a place like GitLab and a company that says, hey, uh, they hire a developer and they say, hey, we want to start this project. And the developer says, yeah, you know what? I'm really comfortable with a Git workflow and I'm really comfortable uh, with GitLab and these tools. And then the CFO says, well, I haven't heard of that. That's not all we do things around here. And that's out on the internet and all open and stuff. I don't understand how that works. Having a sales rep that can attend or join a meeting and say, hey, you can make a private a repository private just because you use this way of developing software doesn't necessarily mean that you have to license it any specific way but here are some advantages to licensing it this way and this is why we do everything open in fact if you go to GitLab you can actually read our entire company handbook because we release that as an open source thing they are examples to other companies um and and can demonstrate what this open source and powerful technologies can do and so for that uh, again i think we should be thankful but the subscription model is changing so if you're one of the people affected by that you have about a year to uh, to figure out what you want to do earlier this week google suspended Ele- well, last week the weekend element suspended uh, element in the google play store now they did not notify the element developers google said it was due to quote unquote abusive contracts con Content, excuse me, somewhere on Matrix. The EMS people had to explain to Google that, you know, if you're holding developers responsible for what someone does on Matrix, that would be like somebody holding Google responsible for what somebody does with Chrome. I mean, Chrome is just a web browser to browse the Internet. Matrix, or Elements specifically, is just a client to browse the Matrix infrastructure, the Matrix ecosystem. And so Matrix.org does have a public server and there are terms of service that they do enforce. Uh, and so it, it came as a shock to everyone. Now you have to understand element and matrix are used by the French government, the German government, the UK government, the US government, countless universities, thousands of businesses to include Alta speed technologies and millions of people around the world to include Linux Delta. And so it came as a fairly unwelcome surprise that all of a sudden uh, this application that we use to communicate is gone. Now, I have to give the team element credit here because they were on top of this. They, 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 first of all, you had to know what was going on because it was all over Twitter and they were the ones to, it wasn't other people reporting it to them. It was them giving constant updates of exactly what was happening. And every time they would have communication with Google or they would send it in, they would post back and say, Hey, you know what? We're trying to work with them. They had some sort of templated response thing that clearly isn't a human, but we've gone through that process. We're waiting to hear back. Okay. They've gotten back to us. Here's what they said. Here's what we've said. Okay. Now they're asking for this explanation. We've done this out of the other until it was back up. In the meantime, I'm watching people tweet back at them saying, can we get it from the F-Droid store? Yes, you can, but it's an older version. Well, could we do this instead? Yep. No problem. Here it is. And then they would just add that APK to the, to, to, to the repository so people could get to it. Everything that was suggested or asked of them during that time uh, was done. And so when I look as a business owner at 
what companies I want to partner with. That's the kind of company I want to partner with. Someone who is dedicated to making sure I have access to the resources I've paid for and or expect to be able to use regardless of what their relationship is with individual companies. Okay, fine. We can't get it to you through Google Play. Here's the APK. Here's the F, you know, you can get it off of F-Droid. All of the other ways that we can get software to people. And then even then it was back on Google Play within like 24 hours. I think they got it back on the next day. Um, but it certainly caused a little bit of a stir up. And there's those of us at AltaSpeed went, well, now what? <laughs> but, you know, and again, this is where the benefit of open source is. Even though Element was taken off the Google Play Store, guess what? Fluffy Chat wasn't. And so if you had an understanding of what Matrix really is and what a client is, then you understand that, yes, Google pulled one of the many clients that are available off of the Play Store. Play Store isn't the only place to install software. Element isn't the only client. And so there was an opportunity to reverse that. Gregory Kutzner, founder of the now defunct CentOS Linux distribution, has founded a new startup company called Control IQ, which will serve as part as sponsoring the company for the upcoming Rocky Linux distribution. Now, Control IQ is one of the three tier one sponsors identified by the Rocky Linux project, along with Amazon Web Services, which provides the core build infrastructure, and Mattermost, which is providing the enterprise collaboration services. Think Slack, but not Slack. Rocky Linux is generally expected to be available in Q2 of 2021 with a first release candidate built on March 31st. All companies essentially have the same struggle that are trying to do this, right? Essentially, the problem is they have to find a way to fund the development, even if it's just a recompile uh, for existing distros. What Greg is doing here is very interesting. He is creating an entire resource for people that are in the high-performance com computing market. And so if you want it not, you soft, basically, HPC as a service, that's what Greg is doing, and he's using Red Hat or recompile of Red Hat Rocky Linux to get there. Cloud Linux has also launched today. Uh, Alma Linux is what they're calling it. Cloud Linux is proud to announce the release of Alma Linux beta. They've collected community feedback and they've built out their beta release based on what you would expect from an enterprise level Linux distribution. Alma Linux is a completely free one-to-one -one binarily compatible fork of Red Hat and uh, tracks Red Hat 8. It's inspired by the community built by engineers and talent behind Cloud Linux. To learn more, you can download the beta images. They're available today at repo.almalinux.org. This is, I believe, the first uh, Red Hat recompile that we've had that's actually available for download. I, You know, there's a couple of them that have been announced. Um, this is the first one that we can actually download and play with. So you better believe uh, I downloaded the ISO today and I have it spinning up on a Dell R710. And uh, we're going to see how that works and, and how it plays out. But it's going to be interesting to see uh, what these different organizations do with essentially the same product. Since really the inception of this show, we have always tried to focus on things that you can self-host and ways that people can connect better. I, I think oftentimes what happens is we forget why, the why of self-hosting, the why of having open code. But the why is because it allows us to be in control of the technology and doesn't permit the technology to be in control of us. Now, years ago, I got super into Second Life. I just thought it was a really great way to connect with other people. And it allowed for a tremendous amount of freedom of expression that other mediums didn't allow you to do. Now, if you're not familiar with Second Life, it's basically a video game 
um, where you control an avatar, but there is no defined thing to do. So depending on uh, on what your friends are doing, you might join a thing where you're just standing around and talking. Uh, some people invent games to play, those kinds of things. Well, I have for some time missed playing Second Life, but the reality was it was a proprietary program. Uh, it, it did eventually come to Linux, um, but you had to use a third-party app to do it. And then the other thing was there was this massive push to use their built-in cryptocurrency. And the truth was, this is about the time that Bitcoin and Litecoin and those kinds of things were taking off. And it just seemed like that was a, a, a much better route to go. And so over time, I kind of fell away from it. Well, I saw a presentation last week about a software called uh, Vercadia. Now, Vercadia is an open source 3D interface and server foundation that allows for a vast social educational platform to be created and lived in as well as shared in real time with others. And I don't think there could be a better time in history for something like this to come onto the scene. More people than ever are inside of their homes. More people than ever want to be able to go into their school or want to be able to go into their workplace or want to be able to go into their church or want to be able to go into their extracurricular activity. But because of the health pandemic, they are prevented from doing so. And a lot of those places are uncomfortable doing things in person. Now, a lot of places have moved to online style meetings and they've used different things. We've used, we used Element, for example, during Southeast Linux Fest to try to bring people together. And to a certain extent, that works, right? Um, but really, it's just a gigantic video call, and it comes with all the positives and negatives of a video call. That means, that is to say that you are restricted from what's in your natural environment, what's in your natural background, what you as a person look like or can communicate with. A lot of my friends, um, because I'm a nerd, because I'm a geek, uh, we communicate over technical means. And I remember the first time I've met some of these people um, I found that they had some severe uh, physical handicaps that I was not aware of. And why would I be? Because technology is kind of the ultimate equalizer there, right? And so I remember one time going to a ham fest and meeting one of my, my friends that I, I talked to for years on, on, on ham radio, only to find out that he's bound to a wheelchair. He can't walk. Uh, and I would have never known that had I not met him in person. And so in certain, in certain aspects, you know, it's kind of nice to get to know somebody and get to know them as the person. But other people... The ability to use technology to escape can be a great thing. And, and right now, during a health pandemic, I can't think of a better time when there's going to be people that say, I am so sick of seeing the same four walls in my house. I just want to get out of here. Now, I don't have a lot of experience with VR. Um, I played with it a little bit. I've played with it enough to know that it's when it takes off, when we get to a point that everybody can participate in this, it's going to be huge. But even in a very small way, I had an opportunity to play with the Samsung VR. And in that event, what uh, it was just a few hundred dollars that connected to a phone. But what stuck with me for years after was the fact that I watched a movie in a movie theater on my cell phone. And it wasn't even a good cell phone back then. It was like an S6, I think. But the reality was, because I had this headset on and I had a perfect rendition of a movie theater, other people in the seats... Uh, background noise, the big screen right in front of you, then the lights go dim, then the movie starts, that kind of thing. Even though it was Netflix or YouTube or whatever it was I was watching, the fact that I could watch it in a controlled environment that was different than the four walls that I was actually sitting in was a real eye-opener to me. And so I look at that and say, if you're a person 
maybe your living environment doesn't allow you to uh, freedom of expression and you can't paint or decorate a room the way that you want to or live in a space that you want to. VR enables you to do that. Maybe you want to, again, meet up with other people and you don't have a place that you can invite people over to for one reason or another. VR enables you to do that. Maybe your friends or the people that you or your family uh, are are separated physically from you. I heard a, there's a good friend of mine today was telling me that um, his mother passed away and and he wasn't able to, to see her. He wasn't able to talk to her, wasn't able to to to, to be with her um, because she was in a nursing home and he was prevented from doing so. And so I think technology in VR in particular has the ability to change that. And I think that's why this st- projects like this are so important. So, again, the software is called uh, Vercadia, and it's an ecosystem, uh, an open source, what they're calling a metaverse of applications that work towards the common goal of living in virtual reality. And so the idea here is that you have an open source program that you download off of the Internet. Uh, they ship it as an app image. You can um, you can get it at Vercadia. Vercadia.com, I believe. Um, and it's an open source VR virtual world. Now, I saw an article earlier this week that was talking about how a bicycle shop was suffering uh, tremendously during the pandemic because they weren't able to get people into their shop to buy bicycles. They knew that people out there wanted to purchase bicycles, were indeed interested in purchasing bicycles. In fact, a lot of people, because they weren't using ride-sharing apps for one reason or the other, again, related to the health pandemic, or maybe they weren't just going as far, now instead of having to go all the way to work and then come home, they're not commuting an hour and a half. Now they just have to go from their house down the block to their grocery store and pick up groceries. Uh, and so they want to do that on a bicycle. But people weren't coming into the bicycle shop to buy bicycles. And so they used, I think it was Teams that they used, but you know anything would work, right? A web conferencing software to allow virtual tours of their showroom. And so they had all their employees in there and they had their computers and said, yeah, we can take you along and, and show you this. I saw uh, in Minnesota, there was a a lady that ran a small knickknack shop did the same thing. Uh, she would do Zoom calls with people, and you could schedule a Zoom call, and she would take you around the store and show you what was available. And if you wanted something, uh, she would conduct the transaction for you. She would take the payment from you. She would package the item up for you, and she would ship it to you. You could come and pick it up at the store. And so this ability to meet with people and the ability to interface with people and the the, the ability to connect with people almost as if you're face-to-face or in person, uh, this is a real benefit to people. And so... Th- the other thing is here, I believe that it further furthers your ability to protect your privacy. One of the things that has appealed to me about the Internet and about being online since really day one is you can go on the Internet and you can ask a stupid question and then somebody will give you the answer to your stupid question and then you can separate yourself from your former ignorance. You're no longer that person anymore. You now know the answer to that question. You now have that information. And so if your reputation, so to speak, was damaged online, you throw that username away and you pick a new one. Right. And over time, there's been a systematic approach to try to eliminate that from people and to try to remove that and tie uh, everything to an individual. We want real people to have to suffer the consequences of whatever it is they say or do, even if they're no longer that person in a few years. We don't ever want to give them the ability to reset from that. They has to live in perpetuity forever. And I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't necessarily think that's that's good. And I certainly think uh, it in certain cases it, it can cause tremendous harm. One of the things that up that that drew me to Element right off the bat was the fact that I could create as many accounts as I wanted to. And that allowed me to do practical things like give all of my kids who don't have phone numbers to tie phone numbers to accounts on, on Element. But it also allowed me to, you know, uh, create a bunch of different accounts to to explore 
uh, out in the internet. And, and that, I think that is a valuable thing. And so what, um, what Ver, Ver, Vercadia is doing here is taking that to a whole nother level. Um, it's not designed as a game. It's designed as a social platform, but very much like Second Life, it's designed as a social platform without a particular end goal uh, in mind. When you log into the system, there is no task that you have to do. There is no uh, there is no objective you have to obtain. You might be just showing up in this server so that you can communicate and interact with your friends. You might show up in this server because somebody is hosting an event, and so the idea that later this year we might be able to use something like this to host Southeast Linux Fest. Now, right now we're planning on having it in person, but let's just say something falls through. Uh, let's say something falls through the net, or let's say it doesn't fall through the net, and we have it in person. We, ha- you may not have the ability to attend in person. How great would it be? If you could attend Southeast Linux Fest, you could come and sit in Noah's booth and you would be sitting at in the exact same virtual world that I and all of the other people that are hanging around Noah's booth are sitting in. Or maybe we have a big screen and so other people can interact with you and you can kind of see uh, uh, what's going on. That ability to connect with people seems incredible. And so I watched a 45-minute demonstration. We'll have a link for you in the show notes. Um, where this was presented at a conference, and, and the, the developer walks through exactly how this works. Um, it's really fantastic. Of course, they offer the ability to host your own server. Of course, they offer the ability to just download the app image and connect um, to the public metaverse is what they're calling it, um, the metaverse being a large universe that exists in virtual reality. Uh, but this is this is far from just entertainment. It really is. I think part of it is there is a legitimate communication tool here to be used for work and for business and from a sales standpoint and from a customer satisfaction standpoint, the ability that they feel like they have connected with their whatever the widget company or the IT company or whatever it is that you're presenting uh, to your customers. You have the ability to maintain that relationship and understand uh, human communication, something like 90 percent of communication is nonverbal. Right. And so a phone call just doesn't cut it. And yeah, Zoom gets us a little bit further there. But again, you're still um, you're still having to put yourself out there. Right. The backgrounds that you're able to to to, to put up or the desk that you have or the audio system that you have, all of the, the clothes that you wear, the, the way that you're presented, all of those things now matter. And inside of VR, inside of an application like Vercadia, it's not going to matter because you're going to be able to design that from scratch. Now, there's three components that are particularly interesting. The first is the, the, the concept of a metaverse, the, the concept of a universe outside of our real universe that you can access through your computer and design however you want. The second thing is the fact that this ties in natively with VR, which brings the whole experience more real. Now, the developer said that he primarily has done this with Oculus. I'm not sh- I'm sure that there are plans to expand beyond that. Right now, it's just on Oculus. And as you're aware, if you followed, unless you've been living under a rock, Oculus is no friend of Linux and hasn't been for quite some time. They initially released there, but it, 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 it's since tapered back. Um, and Facebook has assumed more and more control to the point now you need a Facebook account to use your Oculus. Um, so the, there, there are some rough edges to be sure, but even just as a desktop application, as an app image that you can download and run, it's absolutely fantastic. And so if you've never had the opportunity to play with, uh, with Second Life or any sort of virtual world, this would be one I would highly suggest getting into. 
by I was, I was talking to somebody today and they were asking me, said, how would you explain that to somebody who has never experienced Second Life? And I, I said, well, it's kind of like Minecraft for adults. Instead of like building things out of grass blocks, it's you're building real infrastructure. And in the case of Second Life, it got to the point where people were building um custom buildings, custom objects, custom things, and then you could purchase those things. And there were people that were actually making money off of selling things in virtual reality. And so I, when I look at something that isn't built as a game, that isn't built as entertainment, that's built as an actual tool for people, and that is open source and runs on Linux, I start to think, how, could, how can we leverage that tool to make business better, to make communities better, to help connect people better? Again, the, the application is Vercadia. It's an ecosystem, an open source metaverse application that works towards the common goal of living in virtual reality. A 3D interface, a server foundation that allows for a vast social and educational platforms to be created and lived in while being used in shared real time with others. I, you know, my kids coming home from school, we did, uh, I think two semesters now at home, one semester, uh, they've gone back to school. And I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, the thing that all three of them said that they desired were to be in a classroom with their friends. It wasn't that they thought that they were getting less education. It wasn't that their questions weren't getting answered. It wasn't that they had a difficult time comprehending the material. All of those things were a perfect translation for them. They made the adjustment fairly easily. Uh, what they didn't adjust well to, what they didn't accept, what ultimately ended up being the sticking stone and the thing that drove them back into the classroom was they said, hey, I want to see my friends. I want to connect with people. And that is a vital and necessary component uh, of our society. And technology has now caught up to the fact that um, we're going to be able to leverage software like this, technology like the Oculus and other VR technologies to bring people closer together and to connect them, even when physical connection or physical being in the same room is impossible. Now, someone asks on Element, um, <laughs> unrelated to the VR thing, why would somebody want to sell full Spotify? What doesn't Spotify work well in Linux? Well, it does. But again, what you have to understand is these companies have their own motives and their motives are usually money. And the way they get there isn't something we're always going to agree with. Head, uh, source com, compsmag.com. I'll have a link for you in the show notes. Uh, headline, Spotify patents technology to recommend songs based on the emotion of their users. Uh, According to a patent application, the company is developing technology that can extract intonation, tension, and rhythm as similar units of speech that can detect and categorize a speaker's emotional state. In conjunction with other data from a user's listening history, previous requests, appropriate music can then be recommended or played. What they say, not surprisingly, the Internet took pleasure in this. The catch that technology companies often file patents for innovation that are never used in their products, and a company spokesman... Uh, person told us that we don't have any news to share at this time. But all of that to say, again, when you start looking into the decisions that these companies make, you notice that oftentimes they're not very transparent about what it is they're doing. They're not transparent about how it is they generate income. And um, ultimately, that doesn't necessarily lead to a good experience for you. And so that's where the, the interest in self-hosting uh, something like Spotify comes. Also, that the the you can join us in the Geek Lab. Um, it is available on Matrix as a chat, or you can go to geeklab.ninja and join right there in your web browser. We are going to uh, we are going to try to use uh, Vercadia for Southeast Linux Fest, or at least I'm going to at Noah's booth and have it running in the booth and see if I can get other audio from from rooms piped in, from other places piped in. Um, 
JT in the, the chat room and said, hey, we've looked at doing this before. The technology just didn't exist. Believe me, if it had existed, we would have done it last year because last year we were looking for this very thing to exist and it didn't. Um, and we looked at things like Blue, Big Blue Button and we looked at things like Matrix and and it, there just wasn't a clear contender. But at this point, um, it it will be a fun toy, if nothing else, to play with. But I genuinely believe there are some really practical things we can use it for. Hey, the music means that we're out of time. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest, follow us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. You can follow me personally at Colonel Linux. This show is recorded every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at AskNoahShow.com. The show continues. All of the show notes, all of the resources that we use to build the show are available to you at podcast.asknoahshow.com, as well as a rerun of this episode and the entire back catalog. We'll be back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central. We'll see you there at AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week!